Muerto Allende, socialista, Muerto Allende, asesinato. Hey everybody, thanks for coming out. My name's Andy Gitlitz. I'm part of the Woodbine Collective here, and I'm also the co-host of the Antifada podcast. We're going to be recording this discussion for the podcast. Yeah, I just want to thank everyone for coming out on tonight, just not only because it's raining, but also I'm sure we all have uh, what's going on in Gaza and Palestine on, on our minds. I hope that this discussion will be somewhat relevant to that. We're of course, we're here with Michael Hart. We're talking about his book about revolutionary groups in the 70s. And we'll be focusing on those liberation struggles, especially the way those revolutionaries theorize their organizations, their politics, their tactics, including questions of nationalism, internationalism, decolonization, and armed struggle, and the way they started asking those questions in a forward-thinking way that reverberate to the movements of the last 25 years that have influenced this space, the space emerged out of those movements, but also, of course, the pro-Palestinian struggle since the Second Intifada and other decolonial struggles like the Zapatistas and Standing Rock, which were big influences on the space as well. So we'll be talking about history, but with a mind towards moving towards what's going on today, what we do here, and revolutionary struggle in general today. So. With that in mind, we can begin our discussion with Michael Hart. He's a philosopher and a political theorist, co-authored books with Antonio Negri, including Empire, Multitude, and Commonwealth, and now the Subversive 70s. So let's all thank Michael Hart for coming here. Um, so your book, opens addressing this idea of the 70s that it was sort of the defeat of the 60s or that the 60s was this revolutionary period and then the 70s, I think you quote Todd Gitlin and others saying that it was a decade where nothing happened or worse, it was just like, uh, it showed the insufficiencies of the 60s and everyone became yuppies or neoliberals or whatever. But you argue actually that a lot of what was going on in the 70s was more advanced and we have more to learn from what was happening in the 70s than we do from the 60s in some ways. So w why did you focus on the 70s? Well, first of all, thanks, Andy, for having me, and thanks to Woodbine. It's great to be here in this amazing space. And thanks to all of you for coming out on a wet evening. Um, so I do think that uh, trying to think about the revolutionary movements of the 1970s does always stand in the shadow of the 60s which is assumed in some general cultural memory is like the last memory uh, revolutionary moment um and i do think uh yeah like you said andy i think it's more relevant for us and more interesting the movements in the 70s um there are two ways in which the 70s are written off like you suggested i would separate them actually one is that um uh, people in the movements there's sort of movement memory that in the 70s everything fell apart you know, because with the imagination that there was a unified movements in the 60s and the 70s, there was a proliferation of movements. Um, so that various forms of separatism, etc. Maybe that actually goes along with the one you said, where the other one, which is like uh, seven, the 70s is when nothing, when nothing happened. I think to maintain the notion that nothing happened in the 70s, <clears throat> and it's even focusing on this plurality or multiplicity of the struggles, is, is to not recognize the diversity of struggles in the 70s, which created that multiplicity. I mean, that the feminist movements 
um, are primarily focused in the 1970s, uh, gay liberation movements primarily in the 70s, anti-racist movements take a different form in the 1970s. So I think the ones who say, who think that nothing happened in the 70s is partly with a kind of strategic blindness to um, this multiplicity of movements. And similarly with the thing that everything fell apart, you know, with this notion about separatism, because uh, I mean, I think they fell apart maybe, or the things that fell apart, I think it's right that they fell apart. You know, this notion that functioned previously in many countries, the US included, that many of the movements were assumed that the workers' struggle or class struggle was primary, and of course we paid attention to, in the language of the era, you know, the woman question or the race question or something like that, but they were thought to be secondary. Like unity was maintained by a kind of hierarchy of struggles. And so I was thinking it's a, it's a fantastic thing that the multiplicity, you know, that there was a refusal of feminists to follow within male leadership movements, and there's a refusal of black struggles to um, work with white-led and dominated movements. So anyway, that's, so one of the things I think is important about the 70s is the development of a politics of multiplicity in that way. There's another way I would say that the 70s are interesting for us, and I think it's worth, or at least interesting for me studying. I'm not saying that everyone else has to, but um, I think that this, I read the 70s as the beginning of our era. Like the 60s were super important, revolutionary movements of all kinds, the Cuban Revolution, any number of other things that happened in the 60s, in 59, but still uh, function as part of the 60s. Um, but the 70s, I think, uh, the terms of politics that we still face were created. Like you could see this from the opposite side, let's say, you know, that forms of neoliberalism emerged in the 1970s, um, passage from, from Fordism to post-Fordism in, in production. There are a lot of things that we're still living with, that they were the first, let's say the revolutionary movements at the time were the kind of first essay, the first uh, attempt to address these conditions. And so one thing I find when, you know, I found when trying to focus on these movements is, maybe the first thing I recognize is, oh, I can see there are seeds of things that are, we're doing now. You know, like, so for instance, um, yeah, for instance, in, in France, there was a decade-long occupation of, uh, of where they were trying to expand a military base in Larzac, you know, so in, the, in, the, in, a non, in a rural area. And they created an occupation of the land. You know, there was a, uh, uh, an interesting union between the people who lived there and militants coming from urban areas, especially from Paris. And they constructed this encampment that lasted for a decade and finally blocked the military base, which certainly has resonances with Stop Cop City and that kind of encampment to to block something. So anyway, that's just one example of the ways you could see, and that, you know, I guess I have some interest in this, or I have some interest in this, where you see the seeds, you know, like the embryo, or I hate reproductive metaphors, but you know, the, the development, you know, something like that, where you can see the beginnings of it, that then you can see what's what we have today. It's more interesting for me and this is often the case, is I feel like instead of us being a development of what was happening in the 70s, is that they were actually way ahead of us. And so recognizing the ways they were ahead of us is, um, I don't know, that's, that's when, it's at those moments that I find things much more useful. And just one example of that, I mean, this is a, a very broad example, but one thing I feel like we've, has been lost, and not completely, but to a certain extent, is the radicality of the vision and ambition. 
you know, so that liberation was in the in the revolutionary movements of the 1970s, liberation was inevitably a keyword. You know, so about worker liberation, about feminist liberation, gay liberation. You know, these were the um, black liberation, of course. And I feel like there's been a kind of um, downgrading of ambitions. You know, so that you know when you think about. <clears throat> I'm sure many of you have seen Kianga Taylor's book from, from during the first Black Lives Matter thing, where she's in some ways remarking that instead of black liberation, we're talking about Black Lives Matter. You know, like, of course, Black Lives Matter is important, but there's a kind of downgrading of the slogan. Instead of worker liberation, now it's $15 an hour. Or instead of feminist liberation, it's gender equality. You know, like, not completely universally, but it's what I want to hold on to or what I'm inspired by is that aspiration for a politics of liberation. Like the one way, you know, once I say that, I recognize you, we, we do see, I think, not always in direct terms, today in discourses about abolition, a similar kind of, at least the implication of a similar kind of ambition. You know, so, you know, not only, um, you know, abolition of the prison, abolition of the police, ab uh, but also abolition of the gender binary. I mean, the, the way uh, abolition of borders, there are ways in which that discourse travels about abolition that I find super interesting today. And I would say at least, like I say, that it's not, when one says abolition, one doesn't necessarily say a liberation, but I think it's implied the, the, the height of that ambition is perhaps implied by it. Anyway, I'm just saying that to give you an idea of, of, of the kind of um, a general frame for ways in which I feel like we could learn from the movements going on 50 years ago and perhaps adjust our politics and ambitions to their, to their aspirations. You know, the book covers so much ground and I, I learned a lot from it. Um, and I especially didn't know anything about the first chapter of the book when you're talking about Amilcar Cabral and uh, the liberation struggle in, in Guinea-Bissau against Portuguese colonizers. Why did you choose to start the book there? Well, you know, so I, I should just back up. Yeah, so maybe I should also uh, start by saying in this in the book, what I tried to do is an impossible uh, whatever task I set for myself was to try to uh, study and account for, engage with revolutionary struggles in as many countries as I could. I have a lot of limitations, like linguistic limitations, all kinds of other things. So. Um, one of them was, like you said, uh, the revolutionary struggles, or I mean, really anti-colonial struggles, but also liberation struggles in the Portuguese colonies. So Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, and there was a lot of circulation among the three. As you know, in the British and French colonies of Africa, they had attained independence previously. It was the Portuguese colonies that remained. And one of the things that was different about them was that they didn't like I love the metaphor that one of the, it's really an observer said, is that in the, in the uh, Portuguese colonies, there was no furniture left around. Like meaning that like in the British and French colonies after independence, there were governmental structures of the colonizers that were then taken over. In some places, legal systems that were then taken over. And because, partly because Portugal was the, at the time the longest lasting fascist regime, there were no usable governmental structures and so this kind of um, openness was one of the things that I think made it really exciting. I mean another thing and maybe it's a consequence of this that, that Cabral and other of the revolutionary 
theorists involved in it were working with was trying to develop a notion of revolutionary democracy, which was completely separate from, completely separate from, quite, I mean, they weren't trying to attain um, the democratic structures of, liberal democratic structures of North America and, and Europe or something like that. It was rather than refusing those, how could we create a different kind of democracy? And I found that super inspiring and, and something that in some ways traveled with other movements. Um, democracy here based on council structures or they called them uh, commission struggles, you know, in the Portuguese. And um, so they're trying to invent a participatory democratic framework that could function at a at a large scale. That was part of the part of the part of the task and something I found um, yeah, super inspiring, both in in these um, anti-colonial struggles, but also something that that traveled in um, that traveled in other movements. And like there's a I, there's a what do you say? I think it's probably apocryphal, but there was uh, it's often said that after the Portuguese Revolution in 1974, which was in some ways brought about by the anti-colonial struggles because Portugal could no longer maintain the colonial wars, that the uh, terms of the revolutionary efforts after the revolution were filtered through the soldiers who had been combating the anti-colonial struggles, that those soldiers had learned democratic structures from the struggles they were against and brought them back to Portugal. And so whether they did that or not, it's a lovely idea that the colonizers would learn from the colonized in order to bring democracy home. Whether that's true or not, it's they, it was what was most inspiring in the two years of revolutionary process in Portugal from 74 to 76 um, was precisely the same attempt to create uh, workers' commissions, often in self-management of factories, uh, neighborhood commissions that managed housing and distributed goods within neighborhoods, rural commissions that had also took land. I mean, that's the kind of thing I'm, I'm sure you could recognize also from even a space like, like this, which is a kind of, um, what you call it, a kind of democratic redistribution of goods from the ground up. Something that I think all of us recognize as part of our politics now and seeing how it, how it was functioning then, often at much larger scale, I, I find super inspiring. Yeah, and um, I think part of this transition from the 60s and 70s in a lot of these groups seems to be a, I don't know, a reconfiguration or a reworking of the more orthodox Leninist model. Uh, and this especially comes into play when you talk about autonomia in Italy in the 70s. And it seems like you're, I don't want to say critical, but you see that they're, they're posing this question of how to organize on a more of a network or constellation basis, which sounds like it's setting up the groundwork for something like the movement of movements that I'm more familiar with from you know my time on the left. But they hadn't totally transitioned away from Leninism. And there's also, you make the argument that this transition wasn't purely like they were critical of Leninism, they rethought it, but the neoliberal era had de-emphasized or distributed industrial production. And so the question of the worker, like the factory worker being the central subject of the revolution also had to be reimagined in different ways. Um, right. how, yeah, so what, like, what was the sort of day-to-day -day basis for that, quest that questioning or reconfiguration? 
You know, I think we all know the story, and, and there is a certain kind of uh, cultural memory of the 70s as the time when uh, the workers' movements were destroyed. Destroyed partly, like you say, by, um, by, partly by automation, partly by uh, geographical displacement of production, you know, sometimes outside of the dominant countries. And so two places this happened um, in quite remarkable ways, and, and the contrast I think is instructive for me, and it's, I, I'm being somewhat approximate with this. But in the US, the early 1970s were incredibly um, intense worker struggle in factories, you know, industrial worker struggle. More strikes in the 1970s than there have been since the 1930s. And also more dangerous to management strikes, um, mostly wildcat strikes that were both against capital and against the factory and against factory discipline, but also against the established unions that which wanted to mediate um, between them. And so um, I read, or it seems to me, uh, yeah, I don't know if it's really an obvious argument, but it seems uh, I'm convinced by the fact that what happened was with the, when the factories became ungovernable, then capital had to respond and restructure in order to displace the possibility of, of that worker power. So in the U.S. that that happened, you know, roughly in, in the mid-1970s, and often the discourse about the birth of neoliberalism, that's part of that, part of that understanding, you know, of the restructuring of capital that undermined the previous bases of class struggle of the industrial workers especially. That also happened in Italy at the same time and in many other countries. But in Italy, in the, whereas in the U.S., the, um, the end of the centrality of workers' power didn't uh, at least immediately transform itself. One of the things I found most interesting in Italy, like Andy mentioned about Autonomia as the group, is the attempt to uh, discover a new form of struggle that was not based on the centrality of the industrial worker, you know, which the basis of which had, had been destroyed, but, but pursued the notion of class struggle, but class struggle in articulation with a variety of other social struggles that were becoming more powerful at the time. Uh, feminist movements, of course, movements of the unemployed, student movements in Italy, and you know the anti-racist movement wasn't very developed in Italy. But, but the, what they attempted, and this is what seems interesting to me, is that like saw the destruction of the centrality of the industrial worker, that was the term used at the time, the, the centrality of the industrial work was destroyed, to see it not as a uh, tragedy, but as an opportunity. Like I think, in fact, so, you could say, you could put it another way. And this is the cruder way of bringing it to the present. You know, like that, that the previous class first perspective was undermined. At least industrial working class first was undermined. And so what I'm trying to point to is rather than viewing that as a loss, to see that as an opportunity. And like Andy said, it, 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 what in, in, in Autonomia, this group in Italy that was born after the, is part of this restructuring, there was the attempt and the vision to create a network movement, they used that term at the time too, that would put together not only geographical different part of the movie, movements, you know, in different cities in Italy, they were defined differently, but also, like I said, different sectors of the movement, you know, anti-patriarchal movements, anti-heteronormative movements, anti-capitalist movements. Um, you know, it was, you could also say, and many of the people you know, who participated in this in Italy in the late 70s felt, felt like it failed. 
I would say it was defeated. And maybe we'll come back to this later. I, I mean, I, um, it was defeated in the sense that it was a time, I mean, this is not only true of Italy at the time, of enormous repression against the movements. And, um, and so in some ways that experiment by the late 1970s was, there was an input to it. But I'm, but I'm super attracted by the attempt at uh, converting from a, a thinking the revolutionary movement as being represented by and led by industrial workers to a different conception of revolutionary movement that doesn't have, uh, it's not even like it transferred at center. So that it's both a class struggle, you know, so it's not a saying like, um, we want to get rid of the class first perspective and therefore class struggle is not part of it. Rather, reconsidering what class struggle means, but considering it, let's say, on equal footing with uh, other sectors of the movement and trying to keep, and so I'm trying to hold that together. I mean, that's what, but anyway, that, that is certainly something that feels extremely contemporary to me and one that answers a lot of, or addresses a lot of debates that I feel like we are having um, within movements today. Uh, and you mentioned feminism before, and I, I think uh, that's a really inspiring chapter in the book about how radical feminism emerges in the late 60s and through groups like the Jane Collective and, and self-help circles. It really takes the world by storm. You know, feminism becomes this mass movement very quickly. Abortion's legalized in the United States. And through my lifetime, feminism was one of the major leftist vectors of struggle in the United States and you know, still throughout the world, especially in Latin America and Poland. But you know, one of the very depressing things we've seen in the last few years is that being reversed. Like, and I think it's part of this broader revanchism against what uh, I, I thought of before I read your book as the gains of 68. Maybe the gains of 77 is a better way of looking at it. But it's been sort of confusing to me to see like go from the Women's March and 2017, which was one of the largest mass protests in the history of the United States, millions of women and their allies, um, to seeing the Supreme Court decision last year, and no one really seems to know what to do about it besides go back to the Jane Collective model to some extent. And this question of like how do these, of how do these movements like struggle together without prioritizing one issue or one struggle over another. I think that was addressed in some ways by the popularity of intersectionality, especially intersectional feminism in the 90s. Um, and I wonder if that's maybe shown itself to be insufficient in the last few years, um, or not something wrong with intersectionality itself, but some new concept of feminist struggle and other sorts of struggle need to emerge to be up to the challenges of this moment. Let me try to separate two, separate, two, two different things, which I mean, could go together the way you're saying, but I, I, let me first try, I mean, I too, around the question about um, US abortion politics. I mean, I too, I think uh, it's not uncommon. You know, like I had thought, and I think most people thought uh, that when Roe v. Wade was overturned, we would see people in the streets, you know, that that would be, and, and there was a certain kind of I was perplexed. Yeah, maybe put it that way. The Supreme I mean, Court might have thought that too. The Supreme Court might have thought that too. Um, but I, it, let me try going back to a certain political development from the 70s that I think is relevant to this and might cast it slightly differently. 
one of the um, one of the political recognitions within the movements um, in the early 1970s was that well the, one of the ways that that it was theorized at the time within the movements yeah and I guess I should sort of s slow down with that even something like um, it's important to me to think about the movements as themselves theorizing and producing concepts you know that maybe this is obvious I may have don't need to say it but it's not as if you know like intellectuals think and movements act that there's a lot of really um, what do you call it, advanced or the most important theorizing often that's going on collectively in movements, often in different vocabularies and such. And so one of the things that, that, that was just a parenthesis, one of the things that was recognized by the movements in the early 1970s in a wide variety of countries was what they called at the time the end of mediation, like meaning that the structures that provided a political mediation previously uh, the union was thought to be able to mediate between workers and capital. The state was supposed to be able to mediate all forms of social antagonism, like with the idea, like here's a classic idea that, you know, with the civil rights struggles in the U.S. comes the Voting Rights Act as a kind of mediation. You know, the state can mediate in that way. And even around the, 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 the question in the U.S., this often came pointed around the U.S., uh, around the Vietnam War, which the idea that, like, if we can have more protests, bigger protests, that finally they'll have to stop the war. You know, like that was the assumption. By the early 1970s, in the US, this was also thought like, there's no more mediation. Like we can protest all we want, they don't care. They only escalate the war with all the protests. And so, um, and I guess to go along with that, the idea that repression has replaced that kind of mediation, that that's, um, so, yeah, so in some ways, the, yeah, the, the end of mediation, maybe you could say the futility of protest. You know, like, you don't have to go along with everything that came afterwards, but one of Ulrika Meinhof's last, uh, she wrote in a magazine, you know, like she was a celebrity journalist before uh, joining the Red Army faction um, in Germany. And one of her last columns was about the futility of protest. Like, it's, that no longer makes sense to protest. Uh, her example was about Rudy Dushka being shot, one of the sort of central activist leaders in Germany being shot by right wing. But it was really the, and, and she felt and everyone, it was sort of widely thought that both the German state and this springer of sort of major media thing was more or less complicit with it. So the idea is that we had to figure something else out besides protest and assuming that there were forces of mediation that would meet protest you know, reforms from the state or something like that. And so it's, it's partly in this context that notions of autonomy developed at the time. Like, so the, the idea being, if one can't account, if one can't address the power structures, the state and other power structures, and assume that they will mediate and change by that address, one has to instead, like the notion of autonomy is, we'll, we will construct it without you. And so a variety of instances, and maybe we'll get to talk about some of them later, that I would put this notion of autonomy in. I mean, maybe the most easy familiar one, just as a kind of shorthand, is thinking about the Black Panther Party, you know, because they provided autonomously for a variety of things. They provided, you know, free breakfast programs and free clinics, et cetera. That's what I mean by this kind of autonomy, not saying, you know, uh, even to the city of Oakland, you need to provide free breakfast for these people. No, they do it themselves. You know, that's, so anyway, I'm now to come back to Dobbs 
you know, to last summer, or what is it now, almost a year and a half ago, the Dobbs decision. Um, you know, I, so I was, I was really disappointed at first, and I've been, you know, several months disappointed. And then I thought, I've started thinking, you know, well, maybe people are more intelligent than that and know that protest is not going not gonna to work. And so I, I've been much more involved recently with, and, and there's um, a lot of, uh, let's see, autonomous developments, you know, like you were suggested that you said, you know, like reproducing the genes, you know, sort of like that, but it's really different now with medication abortions. You know, this, so what I'm interested in is not only, you know, right now there, there are a lot of, um, not exactly underground, but you know, like unpublicized uh, circuits in states where abortion is legal up to a certain point, but also in states where abortion is illegal. But really today they can't, if we were to organize they really can't stop abortions no matter what they do with the law. You know, it's not that hard to get the drugs. It's really not that hard to administer them. It's really safe. What we really need is a kind of social autonomy, like a collective autonomy, a social organization. And then we don't have to demand. I mean, I would prefer that there were free abortions available in clinics. And I mean, I, I'm, I have nothing against the medical establishment myself. A lot of the people involved in this do, but I don't. Like, but since the state's not doing it, we can do it. So anyway, that seemed to me an example of, now I'm viewing it, like I said, rather than my disappointment at not enough people being in the streets, it's rather thinking perhaps there's, it's more effective to take a different route um, that involves autonomy rather than protest. That's, that's partly where I'm going. Um, Okay, I don't know if I did enough of that, but I still only got to half of what you asked, so, um, and I can't remember the other half, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, my next question is a little bit along those lines, okay. which is, you, you talk about uh, a double bind some of these groups found themselves in, especially the, the Black Panthers, but also the autonomists, where they were creating these sort of autonomous bases for their movements, um, but they had to defend them sometimes with arms, and in the process of defending themselves, they had to go underground, and then they became totally isolated from the struggles mm -hmm. that they were uh, motivated by. Uh, and I, it's, I, I sort of read your uh, analysis of this as that there needs to be this kind of suspended tension between the militant self-defense and the autonomous you know, internal organizing or building. Um, and I wonder if uh, you know, like a space like Woodbine, you know, we've, we're very oriented towards uh, sharing goods and accumulating resources. We don't do armed struggle here, you know? Mm -hmm. We don't do uh, anything like that, really. Um, do you think that there needs to be some element of both of those to continue having these movements uh, go towards a revolutionary path? Yeah, let me back up with this one, too, and then and get to it, which is that um, I had been there was there was when I was trying to start working on this project, I had a huge obstacle um, regarding the clandestine arm struggle in the 70s because it seemed to me that it took all of it was spectacular in many cases and it seemed to take all of the attention. And I think also at the time it took a lot of the attention. And I'm thinking of groups like the Red Army Faction in Germany, like the Red Brigades in Italy, the Red Army Faction in Japan. There were a number of these groups that did incredibly spectacular actions. But like you were suggesting, part of the 
difficulty. The Weather Underground in the U.S. is another example, although they have very different, you know, they, they were, anyway, they were only uh, destroying property, not persons, which of course is a completely different thing. Anyway, they, I, what, what blocked me is both the attention that they get, which I felt like eclipsed the much more interesting, more democratic experiments that were going on, but yeah, that, that, and, and I felt like also they, um, like you suggested, because of their clandestinity, you know, because of not being able to act openly, you know, and mix openly with the movement, they really became deprived of all of the intelligence that develops within the movements themselves. You know, that, so they went for years being clandestine and really didn't circulate and learn from the other struggles. Um, yeah, I don't know that this will make sense outside of an Italian context, but I was struck by uh, an interview with one of the members of the Red, of the Red Brigades, you know, so clandestine armed struggle group in Italy that's more or less started in 1973. And, and in 1977 in Italy was a year of like incredible both social experimentation and experimentation within the movements and, you know, something like, like I was saying before, this attempt at a network of struggles working together. And he said, the member of the Red Army, I mean, the Red Brigades that had been clandestine for four years by that point, he said he saw what was going on. He couldn't understand it at all. Like, what the hell are they doing? Like, he emerged from the factory. He was, a, you know, he, he had been in the factory, in the auto factory, and went underground, and he just didn't know. And so I was like, yeah, he was deprived of the intelligence that we get from being contested by other groups, by working with other groups. I mean, there's a lot you learn from the movement. So anyway, that, that, that form of clandestine armed struggle seemed to me like, you know, I, we could talk about the specific groups. It's not like I don't have respect for what some of them were attempting, but I think it was a dead end of, of activism. And so instead, what was a key for me to getting out of this, sorry for the long detour, what, An what Andy suggested was, you know, there were other groups that were also armed, um, and I think necessarily so, but they tried to maintain what I think of as a dual organization, like hold in a kind of tension, um, democratic political social experiments and some forms of self-defense. Um, and so, the, I mean, again, I think the Black Panther Party is one, you know, an example that many would know here, and even it's often cast as tension among the members in the, um, in the party itself, you know, with Huey Newton being the one more favoring the social side and Eldridge Cleaver more fa focusing the military side, you know, so you can recognize it that way. And I think it was hard to hold it together. Um, but it was similar, you know, like Andy suggested, in Italy, it was, you know, a group I studied in Turkey that had a similar thing. Like, so in these cases of extreme repression, where you really needed defense, and arms were necessary. I mean, a certain kind of arms, let's say. But I don't think that's necessary for all of us. That's why. So I admire this. Like this seemed to me a way out of the, what I thought of as the poverty. Yeah, the political poverty that clandestine arms struggle led to. I thought this notion of a dual organization was an admirable alternative. You know, one that had all kinds of, you know, was tensions. You know, holding those two things together seems really hard. I, there are places today where we see the same thing, you know, today in the recent years. I mean, you mentioned the Zapatistas, they're a clear example of that. You know, the EZLN is an army, but of course, you would say that much more of the Zapatista experiment is around the community buildings and et cetera. But they do maintain a tension between the two. And Rojava was another example, you know, that there has to be, you know, there's incredibly inspiring 
um, social and political innovations that have been going on in Rojava, but in a war, you know, so they do have to have an arms our wing too. Um, I wouldn't say though, then when you come back, I mean, at least the way I read current things in the US, that isn't, I mean, I, it doesn't seem to me that that kind of armed protection, you know, and defense is what is called for today or would be effective today. But anyway, all I mean by it really is that, I mean, I guess the general point is that instead of, like that armed struggle isn't just one thing. There are different ways of doing it. And that, and that it seems to me that this notion of uh, these efforts at a dual organization rather than a clandestine armed group was then much more effective. Effective, you know, effective both terms. I mean, effective also because they, they made so much progress doing social experiments, you know, but also, um, yeah, there's, I mean, the way some of the armed struggles went, there was something also suicidal about it. But in any case, I, I don't think, you know, for something like here, I mean, here meaning the US, here meaning Queens, here <laughs> meaning Woodbine, that, um, that that's our situation. I well, might be wrong not, about that. Not in the sense of like armed struggle, but, uh, you know, in the Trump era, we had anti-fascism was very popular. Of course. Right. There is recently a bashback convergence in Chicago that proposes defending queer and trans people physically. Right. Um, in cops uh, in Atlanta, yeah. Cop City, there is a, quite a lot of uh, sabotage and arson of construction equipment. Um, so these, you know, these more offensive, or you can you could call them defensive tactics as well. But you know, you know, physical militant action right. is still on the table for sure. And conversely the mutual aid that has been so successful here at Woodbine has left a, a lot of more revolutionary minded people feeling a little bit, I don't know, I don't want to say bored, but maybe they think it's <laughs> just on its own, it's insufficient. So I think yeah. what the, the questions that you're raising about how the 70s groups thought about this are, are very relevant, but I think maybe what we're lacking is like a, I don't know, like an imaginary of like what a revolution will look like or how our activity, whether whatever we choose to do tactically, is going to move in that direction. Do you? I mean, do you do you feel like amongst the even the revolutionary left today, there is a some sort of vision of revolution? Like that's anything like what people were thinking about in the seventies? I mean, my I should think of a better answer, but it was sort of what I went meant before when I was saying that the discourse of revo of, of liberation seems you know which was so it was almost it seems to me it was almost a necessity of each movement that it had to Im imagine liberation, you know, that it had to pose it. And that seems to me to have declined, you know, put it that way. Um, I do, I mean, I guess you're right. I mean, I think I'm, I'm posing it as a comment rather than a question, um, but I do think you're right that the, um, that we're lacking a imagination of what revolution could look like. Um, and that the, and that the models we have, all seem either outdated, or absurd, or suicidal, um, and sometimes they can go together. Um, but, but that doesn't mean. Um, I think that means, well, it means two different things. 
like the, I was going to say, the one thing it means is that that's an element of our agenda. But the other thing it probably means is that when I'm saying that I'm not being attentive to enough to what's really going on, like that that's what I need. To, I think one needs to, I feel like I'm being insufficient to what people are actually doing. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think I'll ask one more question and we'll open it up to everybody. I think there's probably a lot of good ideas of what people are doing here and um, comments on these questions. But uh, there's an, another book that came out last month was If We Burn by Vincent Bevins. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. Um, it He's basically, look. He, he looks at the Arab Spring and other of the, the mass uprisings of the last 10 years or so. And he makes the argument that these uprisings were inspired by anarchism and autonomism. Um, these networks of movements or movement of movements type idea and definitely horizontalism. And even at their most successful, they created these mass ruptures that didn't have any, there's no vanguard, there's no uh, central political voice or authority there. And as a result, these populists who are often right populists could step in and steer the movement in sometimes totally catastrophic directions. And that was certainly the story of the Arab Spring. So. In a way, I think a lot of people see the last decade of uprisings and say, these were a disaster. This idea of like, if we get everyone into the streets, even if we have some sort of democratic council to manage the movement, there needs to be some sort of guiding principle or politics or vanguard to move things forward. And I think that's why a lot of young people, I, I'm hoping this is just an online phenomenon, but I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, are really attracted to Stalinist aesthetics. Again, I'm, I don't know if you've encountered this. But uh, I think the point of this, <laughs> the point of this Bevin's book is basically like we need Leninism again. Um, I guess what would you say to, to people who have that kind of nostalgia? Yeah, I've I've a couple. There are a couple different responses in my head, and like one should always know when someone gives multiple responses, it means they really don't have one yet. Okay. Um, but uh, like one would one seems to me that I don't think that the in my understanding of the state. Of, of activists today that vanguard leadership is possible. You know, for better or for worse, you know, like I think for better, but I think it's not a, um, I think that it wouldn't, it couldn't, it couldn't function. But that's, that, but I should go to a second one. Like, because when you say, like thinking about Leninism, like there's, uh, you saw my, my my normal co-author Tony Negri, you know, um, wrote a book about uh, Lenin in the 1970s. Um, that um, and his argument was more or less this: like he was proposing a Leninism for today, you know, like meaning 1977. Um, and he said that what what Lenin's genius was, I think I'm recounting this right, was to recognize a mode of organization that matched. The contemporary conditions, you know. So in 1917, it's true that a vanguard party, meaning a centralized decision-making structure, matched the form of organization within the factory in Russia and in Europe and North America too. You know, like that there was the same kind of people understood and were able to function through that kind of centralization. So what we have to do today, so it would be completely ahistorical to say. Oh, what Leninism means today is what Lenin said it meant in, you know, State and Revolution, because he was dealing with a different reality. What we have to do is 
interpret like Lenin did, what are, the, what are the forms of organization that people know and that live by, you know, not just in the factory, I would say, but elsewhere, and interpret that as a form of, craft that into a powerful form of organization. So, so this was ten, uh, Tony's, what would you call it, like um, contrarian move, saying, I'm more Leninist than the rest of you. And what a Leninist party really means today is a party that is, you know, like I wouldn't say horizontal. I mean, I think you're right that there's, certain, there's a certain framework of horizontalism that doesn't, um, that the, there's certain pathologies of horizontalism which we've, which we've functioned with. But that doesn't mean, I don't think that, that recognizing that means, oh, well, we, know we need to go back to the Bolshevik party you know, and, and a kind of centralization. Here's where, it, it was, here's one other thing. And I, I realize, Andy, I'm not being um, as coherent as I should be. This is, you know, when Tony and I wrote this book, Assembly, sort of in, and it was published in 2017, I think, but we were really thinking about 2011, you know, in 2013, you know, so from the, from Tunisia and Egypt through Spain and Greece, Occupy, uh, Gezi Park in Turkey, you know, a number of these things. And this conundrum of leadership, you know, so our, our attempt then was, a, was a, uh, to say that it's not a matter of eliminating leadership, but of reversing its role. You know, so whereas in the traditional forms, or let's say in the Leninist old-fashioned forms, the centralized leadership was responsible for strategy and and general planning where tactics happening every day could be done at the base level we 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 said you know there's a role for leadership in certain times of emergency but certain like tactical reasons that you need leadership which we do all the time you know like every time we have a demonstration or certainly an occupation we have a security team and we have you know some ways delegated forms of leadership but it's merely tactical and and instead the, um, I don't know, you know, what we always end up just calling the multitude as a shorthand, but you know, the um, popular widespread organization should be able to reason democratically to figure the forms of strategy and the important issues. Yeah, put it that way, you know, so that whereas in the other form, it's the leadership that decides all the important issues and at the low levels, the tactics happen, we need instead an inversion of that. Anyway, all I'm saying by this, uh, you know, I mean, I could go more to try to explain what Tony and I meant by that, but it's really that I don't think it's a kind of either or thing. You know, like either we have a centralized leadership and an a old fashioned Leninist party, or we have a kind of horizontalism where all decisions have to be made by pure consensus, or I don't know what the other um, aspects are. That rather there, there's always going to be a mixture of those two. It's a matter of determining the roles and um, responsibilities that those get determined by. So, it, I mean, that's not really an answer to the question, but it maybe try would help pose the question differently. <laughs> you know, rather, uh, what what do we what do we need leadership for, and what are the roles we're willing to accept it handling? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's. And that is sort of my conclusion, too, thinking about this question, is that even the most horizontalist leftist understands there needs to be a moment with some sort of discipline or some, like role-taking, or uh, even if there's not one leader, there's many 
leaders who step up. But I think, I know, as a result of just where we've been since the 70s, it's very difficult for people to imagine being leaders or being even being led. And for that reason, I'm not particularly worried about the enthusiasm for Stalinism because I think it's just aesthetic, but mm -hmm. right, we'll find out. Um, does anyone have some questions? I'm interested in how you think like, the concepts of war position and survival pending revolution have been carried from Newton through into modern organizing, and if you see any particular relevance for that. Say a little bit more. I mean, I know what you're talking about, but what, what are the relevance now that you're seeing? Oh, especially in like indigenous movements in Canada, there's been a shift from wholesale confrontation. Like there's still an emphasis on sabotage and infrastructural yeah. obstruction, but the idea that food programs, education programs, getting kids in front of grannies and cultural transmission is being fundamentally necessary for the continuation of the revolutionary movement. Right. No, absolutely. And I, I think we're thinking the exact same thing using different terminology. I mean, I, that's what I, you know, for the latter one, the concept of autonomy has felt useful for me, um, but I can see the way you're, you're posing that same thing. I mean, the, and yeah, I mean, the, the, then also with uh, the questions about like sabotage and confrontation, those are also sometimes differentiated between ones that are matters of community self-defense and when, when um, you know, I would call it, you know, not always necessarily offensive, and maybe that's the wrong term, but sometimes symbolic actions even are, are important, like these kinds of confrontations. Um, yeah, so to demonstrate that we're still here. I mean, I don't know if at another point we need to talk about Gaza or if now's the time, I don't know if I'm looking at Andy. Maybe I should wait for a more direct one. I mean, okay, I'll, I'll start because I, it just, it's just a simple one. It's just a very basic one, which, um, and then if others want to continue it, I was just, I think that the, um, that the importance of the, up, the current uprising um, is really, you know, the most important things to me is just announcing that we're still here. You know, I, my view is that it's, that this is not a war that we're seeing, but a prison revolt. And prison revolts, I mean, obviously a prison revolt because Gaza is a prison. You know, it's been made as a prison. It's been built as a prison. I think everyone recognizes that Gaza is a prison. But, you know, prison revolts are ugly. A prison revolts are brutal. Um, they're, a prison revolts start bloody and they always end in a bloodbath. You know, like that's what, and, um, and this will, you know, too, that's no doubt about it. And so you could say, you could say, well, then what's the point? Um, and I think part, you know, a lot of the point is that we're still here. I mean, I think that's also with prison revolts in general, like you don't see us, but we're here. Um, and that's what, so anyway, that was just the, uh, when you, when you, when I was thinking about the different forms of aggression, let's call them. Um, you know, I think sometimes they're self-defense and sometimes they're, yeah, it's, it's, it sounds a little bit, it's not, not adequate, I know, but I, I do feel like that's one way of thinking about what is uh, one of the essential elements of the recent um, actions.
in Gaza. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, this is kind of along those lines because I was thinking back to when you were talking about um, the sort of the synthesis between like the more militant, like uh, violent self-defense uh, part of the organization, and yeah. being linked to the sort of uh, the mutual aid and like, anything. And but there's because one example of that is Hamas or Hezbollah, right? There. Mm. They exist as political parties with a lot of social services, and then they have the harm doing. But I guess how do we resolve the fact that, like, having that that association where they're they are formally part of the same organization brings the full wrath of you know the state and the designation as terrorist group. Um, yeah. So it's just like how how is that how do I don't know kind of just throwing that out there? No, you're right. I mean, so that it, well it, that it. Um, I mean, I do also think that we have to find means that are not suicidal. Um, I guess I'm not, um, you know, uh, we're often facing, you know, in, the, in these in these militarized frameworks, um, people are also often facing a really like insurmountably su uh, superior military force. Um, and I, I would I would say, you know, and so the yeah, maybe uh, let me come back to the 70s business again, too. Like, I apologize. These things are on my mind, um, but sometimes they can help. I mean, the um, part of what what happened to the clandestine armed groups in the 70s was not only their separation from the movements and what I would call a kind of said before as a kind of intellectual political poverty from them, but they also imagined themselves the direct interlocutors with the state like and in some ways they and in some ways they demonstrated sometimes superiority to the state like you know the red brigades was great at that like they would show up the police and you know, like they would show how they were better than them but they were just they were kind of uh kind of mirror image that they developed into and so that i mean that that seems to me another um what should we call it pitfall you know that 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 um, like so I'm not I'm not opposed to armed struggle in its any principled way, um, but I think that there are a lot of forms of armed struggle that end up being yeah mirroring the the superior military force and also having no possibility of of addressing it you know of um, of defeating it so anyway I, that's that's just that's just posing principles for thinking about it rather than answering real questions. I, um, I realize, yeah. Yeah, question. I was thinking about, on the one hand, the shift from the 60s to 70s, but I'll try to also loop in Gaza. Um, I think, you know, in the midst, say, the 50s, 60s, there's still maybe what Andy said, this imaginary of revolution. Yeah. And then maybe by the 70s, I haven't read your book yet, but mm -hmm. I think, you know, that the idea is that, like, maybe this shift from revolution to liberation or autonomy or something is like mm -hmm. maybe revolutions no longer possible, but we can still imagine a kind of molecular decentralized, you know, liberatory practice or life or something and how autonomy then relates or like what you're saying also this dynamic of giving up on mediation or protest mm -hmm. and then that also ending up in kind of autonomy as the framework or something, but that is also seeding revolution in some way which, right which and then thinking of us as the inheritors of that which i agree with you 
but then you're then stuck to some of the dynamics might be if, you, if autonomy is the framework or horizon mm -hmm. and no longer revolution because of the historical material dynamics or something, then the two options would be or could be, you know, repression on the one hand. If you're pursuing autonomy like in Italy, mm -hmm. you're, you're either, your choice is either repression or just kind of, if your separatism is so successful, you're just cast aside. So right. it's another way of not benefiting from the intelligence of, not the movement, right. but just society just itself or something. You know, if your separatism or autonomy are right. so successful, and I think how this, I'm, I'm riffing, but how this might relate to Gaza or something, is it's like they could have just stayed in prison in this status quo and been kind of cast aside in their kind of autonomous mm -hmm. separatism or something, or they could opt for the repression, you know, to antagonize the repression or something. But it's like, you know, we're in a different dynamic where it's like with, say, the mutual aid or the service work or something. It's like we can continue to develop these capacities or something, but without the antagonism that's inviting the repression or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's like, do we then risk being cast aside or just right. like, you know, we're just another element within neoliberal society or something. So I think some of the hesitancy around autonomy without potentially this offensive thing is like, how do you, you know, if you achieve it, you know, are you still just or cast aside irrelevant or whatever, you know, like, right. and maybe that liberation dynamic offers a different possibility or something, but autonomy itself, or, you know, there has to be a different belief in that separatism that you want to live within it mm -hmm. outside of you know, a certain old-fashioned revolutionary imaginary or whatever. But I'm thinking about that. You know, That's good. I, I'll be brief because I want to... Um, which is, I, I think it's maybe I'm, I, I realize when you're talking that I should have said some things differently because you're totally right that um, one could imagine practices of autonomy that remain as a kind of ghetto or as a isolated from society thing. I think it has to be cast as a majority project, you know, as a, as a social transformation, not as something that remains in an isolated community. Yeah, that 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 makes a lot of um, sense to me. I mean, so I do think, though, that one that there isn't. I don't think there, that there's a contrast or conflict between these um, processes of autonomy and revolutionary process. I think it has to be, though, on a much larger scale or it has to be on an expansive scale or an expanding scale, something like that. Um, right, and I was, um, I mean, the other thing that you're posing, which is which is much harder to address, is about how, like by what force one can overthrow today the ruling structures. And that that needs to be part of the agenda. Like not only uh, living and creating alternative social networks, which I think is an important thing, but also overthrowing the ruling powers. Um, I don't think that can be addressed in a simple way. I mean, in, what would you say? An old fashioned way. I mean, I don't think we can storm the Winter Palace and, um, and make revolution that way. You know, I think, but I do agree with you that we have to that it has to be an element of the agenda to try to understand how the ruling structures can be overthrown. 
Um, I wouldn't say though, I mean, this is why, like maybe come back to the multiplicity thing. Okay, I, this might be a useless reference in my mind, but some of you have probably seen this uh, film that I'm attached to on all these things called Born in Flames. It's a US film, uh, came out in 82, but it's, anyway, at a certain point in the film, you know, so it's a, it's a, um, it's a feminist army that's trying to transform New York at 10 years after the supposedly socialist revolution that turned out to be still controlled by white men that really oppressed workers anyway and all the other things. Anyway, this feminist army, at a certain point, the, the woman leading it talks to the sort of her wise um, elder. Yeah. And she's complaining, like, we have all these different groups, you know, like we're at our demonstrations, we're all these different groups. And, and then, you know, the, so the other woman says to her, but like, if you came into a room, would you rather confront one lion or 500 mice? And the answer is supposed to be 500 mice. Like, that's more dangerous. But they, of course, then, those 500 mice have to be organized. Um, but if they are, I can see her point, you know, to the, um, that it could just be, the fact of multiplicity doesn't negate the possibility for undermining the power structures. I, I should have said more about that, but I think it's better to go on. Maybe I'll come back. That's a really good question. I see it. while you were speaking, and I'm going to try and um, be concise, but I have no promises. Uh, so I think, first of all, um, as uh, an indigenous person from so-called Canada, currently uh, part of the revolution, I'm with Wooden, um, I think that we are very much still in the fight for liberation, fighting for our sovereignty. And I think I've heard a couple of different things around what sounds to me kind of like uh, a binary framework in, in like framing different struggles as either like social experiments or militarized. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, where I'm from, we are really uh, working and fighting from our like traditional governance framework, um, which is inclusive of everything. So as an example, like our word that we use when we pray is Udakai, which means all of creation. So we're not like, it's everything's connected. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are, because I think oftentimes when people are talking about um, the, uh, for lack of a better word, like escalation within a movement, um, it tends to lean towards like the militarization of the movement. Um, and I'm curious what your thoughts are or um, reflecting on like the history and, and you know, very specifically, you're focused on like the movements of the 70s, uh, what an escalation might look like within a movement that does not tend towards militarization. Like I was thinking before of addressing that, and I wonder if you're thinking in these terms too, that the militarization, at least I was separating two categories of, you know, like one militarization, which is essentially self-defense, self you know, defense of the community, and the other, 
which has i i was felt like i was using the wrong term before like more offensive actions or more you know um aggressive ones i don't know if that's right but anyway i was just thinking the militarization is not always in the same you know there there are distinctions to be made within militarization that's all i meant um so yeah i do and but but also the way you started it seemed exactly right to me that that one doesn't have to there ha doesn't there doesn't have to be a separation between um yeah, what we've been, what I've been trying to call is like community democratic development, something like that, and um, actions of self defense. I do think it's hard to hold them together. But I'm really, I, no, I'm, I'm, I'm like not trying to advocate for uh, the militarization of movement or not. I'm mm -hmm. curious. Um, uh, if you see a, a different way of escalating a I see. and, and um, attaining the goal of liberation that are not militarized. Right. Um, yeah. And that are not militarized. Right. I'm asking for a big answer. Yes, I know, I know. I do, and I'm trying to think if I can, um, yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, usually here's, you know, um, cause my usual, um, this is my, like what I tell myself when I get a sort of question I can't answer about what is to be done is to try to think about what are people already doing? Cause usually they're already answering the questions in some way. Um, but I do, uh, one thing I'm wondering about, just as you and I are talking about it, and I feel like the two of us, I don't know, maybe not you, but I feel like we're getting stuck, which is um, there is a sort of, it's feel, I feel like even in my own head, there's a kind of ingrained um, problem that poses, political problem that poses a, the alternative between violence and nonviolence. And I think that's really a false problem. Or I'm, I'm telling myself that that's a false problem. I don't think that that's the choice, and um, and so that that sometimes gets me, like I you're saying the militarization. So I'm just I'm trying to think through that. Maybe there you're suggesting there are ways of escalating that that don't involve militarization. Um, they might involve certain forms of like the use of force, but not necessarily militarization. That might be the, a better way of saying it. Please do, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thinking, You're uh, saving me. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I, think, I think partly like when we talk about like when you mentioned neoliberalism starting in the 70s yeah. or like there's a way in which we can think about how that affected like the mode of production or something mm -hmm. and not, and some thinkers and I think your tradition do, but how that's also affected as effectively and why there's not a possibility of vanguard leadership or why we do or don't want mm -hmm. that. So in terms of escalation or something, I think there's ways in which we can intensify our affective kind of social experiments or something without that being physical force. Mm -hmm. There's ways in which neoliberalism, especially post-COVID, has made people at home, online, on their screen, on their phone, ordering everything from Amazon or Netflix right. or Seamless. There's an intensification that has to happen to get out of that mode of life. 
that's also a product of neoliberalism. It's not just that I don't work in a factory, yeah. it's that I'm on fucking Instagram all day. That's a certain mode of production. So in terms of like escalation of kind of social relations mm -hmm. or social force, there's a kind of a, an affective resistance that has to happen that's not just assassinating a governor or something, but it's like, how did, mm -hmm. what would even be possible to kind of affectively undo what's happened since the 70s, like in our mind, and in our social relations or something, so in order, like defending a territory or defending anything, like what physically or bodily or mentally has to happen for people to change their life to such an extent that they're encamping for months at a time or something, you know, like mm. that affectively yeah. is something I think about more than do I work at an Amazon warehouse or do I work at Ford or something, you know, like that's mm -hmm. a very vulgar way, but... Right. Anyway, that's my own answer, you know, thinking about well, escalation or something or intensification. I, I think maybe that's where I was, like, the way you're talking about it, I think that's maybe what I was getting to is, like, is there, like, we really, I think, collectively need to look at, like, what are the goals? And you talked about, like, the, the, the move away from liberation, right? And so what, what is the goal now? I know, I know what our goal is, mm -hmm. right? Like, we're doing sovereignty, and y'all fall in line. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, on the internet. Uh, but I think that it's, it's, I don't know. It seems like almost like obvious or like cliche to say this out loud, but it's like, if we if if we have our goal in mind and I have my goal in mind, then we just act as if, mm -hmm. right? And so, what is what is actually stopping us from just doing it, enacting it, and then you know, way we can get down to strategies and specific tactics. Um, but I think, yeah, I think a lot of us are, a lot of folks really are like trapped in their heads about it, you know, and we're all kind of been like post-COVID, especially like railroaded into these like uh, really restrictive ways of like living our lives um, out of fear. And yeah, I, I don't know, I think there was something in what you said that, that made me think of like, yeah, what's, what's, I don't know, maybe we need like to clear the whiteboard and, and mm -hmm. just break, get back to that. Like, what's the goal? What's the goal? Right. And like, what's actually fucking stopping us? Like, is it ourselves? I don't know. I know it's stopping me, but um, it's not doing a good job of it. So. Let me just underline two things because I thought that that was great. I like so one thing, one aspect of what you're saying that seems really important to me, which is the, um, like the power of these aspirations like that that it's not so like that 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 there's a great power to to being able to um set the a revolutionary goal we're after and then some you know like you said like once you have that vision i don't know that wasn't the term used but something like that 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 then things follow and without that there's a kind of disorientation so i do think i mean i that, i think that seems really right to me and, and it's important and what I was maybe in a fumbling way trying to get to earlier when I was talking about liberation like you were 
saying that that um yeah anyway and then one of the things that you said makes me think about what i found so inspiring despite all their problems about 2011 and 2013 you know about the you know occupy here and and the different occupations which was that that the and and about cop city today you know so the actual fact of being together and and you know so i'm not against of course all of the digital ways we communicate etc but there's something that does transform in that corporeal proximity and the encampment itself i mean i think an encampment does is transformative in some ways i guess if you look back over the last i don't know how what are we, 12 years or something now that in some ways covid um heightened the need for that like you were saying that people have been pushed back in some ways from that kind of um contact and i'm not so uh, like i'm not saying that the various occupying encampments were you know transformed the world or something like that but i do i do think one shouldn't minimize the accomplishments of of what happened at them and anyway particularly with regard to what you were saying even you were saying maybe the affective registers that you know transforming the affective registers in which were imprisoned anyway both of those were really good yeah um, i was very intrigued by I was thinking about this a lot in your introduction to the subversive 70s. You said something along the lines of your interest in returning to the 70s um, are not mostly historical. And in a project that seems overwhelmingly historical, I was curious why you made that statement and maybe underlying it is perhaps a strategic distancing from certain academic discourses. And, you know, uh, this is a personal interesting question to me, um, which is taking the discussion to a different direction, but sort of what will be the possibilities that could be opened up or blocked if in the scope of this book you <laughs> consider, for example, rhetoric of the historical um, documents produced directly and indirectly from the movements. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like the psychosocial dynamics of the movements. It seems like you have pri privileged certain documents and chosen certain interpretive methods. And I would be interested in hearing your reflection on just the methodology around how you did history in this book. And, yeah. and I sense that there are certain decisions made to, to be reductive and to, chose, to choose a scope so large, a macro, if you will, kind of yeah. approach to, to this book. Kind of what are the strategic necessities of that approach, and what are the possibilities that are blocked by that approach? Possibly. Um, I, I think well, uh, on the first, uh, like uh, the first step is has to be a kind of um, disclaimer on my part because I'm not an historian. I don't don't know how to follow the 
methods of property historian, and I'm sure that um, there are, you said, things that are facilitated and things that are blocked by this method, and I'm sure by doing actual historical research, one would get, could get much more about, about these things. I, but I also mean by that, and is there's a little bit of tension, I realize, even the way I've been talking this evening, which is, um, you know, what I really care about is what we can do today. And so I'm not trying, I mean, I, so I, I shouldn't say, because it's not true that I'm trying to, that I'm like falsifying what happened in the 70s. You know, like I'm not making it up um, in order to serve my interests for today. It's rather that I'm interested in it so far as it can teach me something about today. And so that's what I meant whereby my interests aren't primarily historical. Um, and, and also, like I said, I, I'm not, there, there's no primary research into documents. I, uh, it's rather, um, yeah, relying on other historians and such. I do find that, um, I do find that the, that there's something I've, I find that one gets out of seeing, uh, not exactly global, but a wide international perspective because there are so many continuities you know both because i would say movements in different countries are facing enemies with similar characteristics but also there's an incredible circulation of struggles and circulation of of um of information about struggles and so there's a kind of you know the construction of a cycle whereby news of Allende's election in Chile in 1970 then gets interpreted for a different contexts and put to use somewhere else. And so that's the kind of thing that I think one gets from this um, wider lens. Or, I don't know, like uh, people in the uh, League of Revolutionary Black Workers in Detroit traveled to Italy and talked to, you know, collectives of workers there. You know, that kind of circulation too happen and one can see that. And so the kind of, I guess it's those continuities I'm privileging. And I guess I do believe, I mean, this is what one would have to be convinced of, I think only by, if it works for you, that I do believe that we have something to learn from them. I guess there's one other thing I should add, which is maybe a little bit sideways to your question. You know, we're, one, one of my, uh, a friend of mine, read the manuscript uh, before, earlier and he said, look, Michael, you know, all this is very interesting and everything, um, but, but they all failed. And so, like, my, it's because a lot of the movements I'm talking about were destroyed, you know, that, that there's no question about that. Um, like, my first response is I see defeat as something different than failure. Like, I feel like they were defeated rather than failure. That's my argument. And whereas failure I see as an internal flaw that then unravels, I see defeat as a superior external force, you know, that, and also I feel like revolution, our revolutionary past is full of defeats, you know, that that shouldn't, that that can't stop us. I think in fact, we should, uh, you know, the defeats just means that there is another step that we can take, you know, that they, that they were blocked at a certain point and we can carry it further. So it is kind of relating, actually, this, what I've just said to your question about when I say I don't primarily have a historical interest in it. Like, I want to understand 
how far they got, thinking that we can take it up from there and go further. You know, so that, yeah, I mean, I guess it's true, though, uh, it just in general terms, we're always formulating our movements based on our understanding of, of, the, of the ones before us. I mean, even our own experiences of them. So like, you know, from, like you were saying, the globalization protest movements in 2000 to the anti-Iraq uh, Afghanistan war to, you know, if we think about this sort of cycle in the US, the series of ones, and we're learning from those, I guess I'm just trying to go a step back further. And it's sort of a discovery for me. I was, I was alive in the 1970s, but like I was in junior high and I didn't, I was particularly unpoliticized. I mean, some junior high school students, turns out, were really politicized. I, I wasn't. Anyway, so it was all a, all a um, discovery for me and like one that I feel like I'm part of. And they feel proximate to me. You know, that's what. Yeah, I remember Tony saying it. Sorry, I bear out Tony so much. Like, so I, it, Tony and I, I haven't written a book alone in 30 years, you know, so I, I, I'm i used to thinking together with Tony Negri. And I remember Tony saying at one point, I don't know if we wrote this or I can't remember where it was, where Tony said, you know, like, when I think about 1848, they seem like, you know, ancient history thing. But 1917, they feel like us. Like, that's what Tony felt. You know, like uh, Lenin, he drank and he, Lenin said, Tony claims that Lenin said this, like never trust a revolutionary who doesn't drink. <laughs> Tony drank a lot, so he was like <laughs> well suited. Um, but anyway, he felt like, and I don't feel that with 1917, like they feel like, and even, even 68 feels to me a little bit like not me, but where, whereas I do feel like, and I don't know if you all would too, you know, that these um, struggles in the 70s feel like, I feel like they could be my friends, you know, like with their all shortcomings and everything, but that, that I feel part of them. So anyway, that's maybe that last part's just a stupid confession. Um, I, I don't know if I really address what you're saying. I mean, you're asking a more serious question actually uh, about methodology. Okay, yeah. Anthony had a question? Anthony, hey. As you're studying these subversive movements, struggles around the world, what if you learned anything new about the state, or it made you reflect on the state in a way that maybe you hadn't thought about it? You know, maybe the the only thing that comes to mind is what I was mentioning before about this sort of um, you know claims of the end of mediation type thing. Um, but I haven't, you know, I, I in a way was uh, attempting to focus only on the revolutionary side of things. Like I felt like about the 1970s, for instance, there's lots been written. Of course, there should be more written and everything about the forms of repression that started in the 70s and the way the state transformed, you know, sometimes under the rubric of neoliberalism, sometimes other, other ways of seeing it. And so anyway, I was, I, whereas in other works, and that's something that Tony and I had often thought about, like trying to understand the state form and, and whatever. In this project, I was trying not to. I bet if I would reflect, I could think of something more intelligent to say. But I was, like I said, I was, I was um, yeah, sort of trying to focus on what were the movements, what was the kind of thinking going on in the movements? That was really what I was. Sometimes it does reflect on the state, but 
but I'm not coming up with any good answer as I'm trying to think about it. Yeah, maybe frame it a slightly different way. Yeah. So autonomy and liberation come up a lot. Autonomy and liberation from what? And how, how do you think that question might be relevant for thinking through struggle right now? Yeah, I'm because I'm, I'm I'm primarily thinking about not as and I think I'm trying to think through now if that's if it's true that in the the kind of um, discussions and and reasoning going on in the movements not so much as autonomy from the state but autonomy from capital autonomy from patriarchy you know it, so it's about these multiple structures of power and the ways that we could get autonomy from them. And I guess thinking the state there rather as a, you know, form maintaining these these various structures of power rather than something that one aims for in itself. Oh, yeah. hey. um, I was just kind of bring up with uh, community mutual aid, um, like Black Panther's uh, breakfast program was, in my mind, uh, just revolutionary as their armed struggle. Yeah. Educating kids, they were performing the role of the state better than the state could in that position. Um, I guess my question was um, on the topic of the Black Panther Party. They did have like a lot of international support. <coughs> How do you see, I guess, movements of autonomy um, running out to uh, international stage like that with the current? Yeah, that's super. I mean, for the first one, there's, uh, which you probably have in mind too, is the the famous, I, I think it's from a memo that J. Edgar Hoover wrote saying something that the breakfast program was more dangerous than, it was the most dangerous aspect of the Panthers or something like that, which is, I mean, it's not that J. Edgar Hoover was always right, but nonetheless, it seems like um, a nice confirmation from, um, you know, I think that the question about, um, international circulation is really an interesting one. You know, this, it's one way in which the Zapatistas, you know, it, there's a lot that happened since the birth of the Zapatistas, but one of the things that was so innovative was the manner in which they orchestrated. Um, you know, it's not just they orchestrated international support for their struggle, which that was certainly true, but they spread their, um, you know, what they, yeah, what they were doing was allowed to spread in a way that was, um, yeah, that was using different means. I mean, it, it sounds so um, anachronistic. I don't know, it sounds, it sounds weird now to say that, you know, like their use of digital media seemed innovative at the time, even though it seems, it might seem rudimentary to us now. Um, but that's probably an interesting question to ask about what the, what the potentials and, um, and power of the, international struggles are today like if one would look at the encampments in france in recent years you know the rural encampments i'm thinking of mostly you know against the airport now against this water basins and the relations with stop cop city you know because i mean actual relations like people who had been at those encampments come to atlanta but also just um a, what do we call it? a proliferation of intelligence or something um but what you're asking, it seems to me, is something I, um, that seems to me important to think about. And I don't have a, it's more just 
is how how could that circulation um, like what's the role of it today and how could it function uh, so I can point to some examples like with this one between France and and Atlanta but um, okay here's a stupid personal biographical story but doesn't it doesn't quite it well it only partly addresses what the way you're saying I was when I was yeah, it might have been 1985 or something. I'd been involved with this sanctuary movement in the U.S. and then, you know, which which brought Guatemalan and Salvadoran refugees to the U.S. to testify about U.S. politics, something like that. And then with with sanctuary, I went moved to Mexico City to be a contact for people coming north, and then got frustrated with the movement, and moved to El Salvador, and so I was in El Salvador as part of the with the it was with a student group at the university, um, which were involved in the in the struggle itself. Anyway, it, so there was, I was there with my partner and we, at the time, and we were like a party that they put on, the student group. And at a certain point, you know, they stopped and they said, you know, the, the guy who was leading it said, you know, like, we're really grateful to our North American comrades that they're here, but they'd really be more helpful if they go home and make revolution there. And, you know, Reagan had just been elected the second term. I was like, and I said to him, like, um, I, I have no idea what you're, you know, I, I don't know what, I don't, I don't know how to do that. And he said, look, it's simple. Do you have mountains? And I said, yeah, we have mountains. He says, you go to the mountains, you form an armed band, and you make revolution. <laughs> and I was like, so my first reaction was, um, that would, I would, we would just be suicide, it'd be suicide. But it, so I, maybe what we should distinguish now, a different, different suicidal, because I thought then, it was in fact then, this is, now I'm telling you way too many personal anecdotes. Like it was at that point that I had started to read about things that happened in Italy in the 70s and I felt like that was closer to what we could do in the US and I shifted and I broke up with the person who stayed, no, anyway, I don't need to tell you all the personal things. But, um, but it just, maybe we should distinguish, maybe the story helps with this part, which is that there are certain suicidal things that do seem useless. You know, like which where where there are other alternatives, like there are more constructive alternatives. But then you're saying, well, there's certain instances where that suicidal action is really a declaration of how intolerable life is like this, and there really aren't alternatives. And I totally agree with you with that. So I'm maybe for me, I'm trying to distinguish between different situations where, um, yeah, we're different. Yeah, where other situations where there are other where there are other possibilities, whether using some form, even form of arms, but not in a strictly suicidal way, might be helpful. Maybe one more question. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just going back to some of those questions earlier about escalation, and yeah. also about vision, like what is the revolution? What is liberation? What is it that we're that we're aiming for? And I think that. You spoke of defeats, and there have been, um, it's been centuries of defeats. Yeah. And what's, I think, perhaps most telling and important, perhaps, uh, when we're thinking about revolution, is that the defeats haven't only been those that were crushed by the state, mm -hmm. but also those that succeeded in revolution. Yeah. And, you mean uh, like what first looked like to have a victory turned out to be defeat? Yeah, certainly that's how I, I see it yeah. over and over again in the context, um, you know, of. Like, Speaking of Stalinism, you know, but mm -hmm. also speaking of uh, colonization, anti-colonial struggles, and neo-colonization. Yeah. 
Um, and I think that one of the biggest challenges has been that the imaginary, that the horizon of revolution has been, you know, in a very profound way, um, always limited to reorganizing the patterns of life within the empire, mm -hmm. within the structure of this world historical, you know, uh, emergence of a, of a kind of violent colonizing force that has eaten up much of the world. And um, I think that one of the things that has really emerged over the last, you know, 30, 40 years, and, uh, and perhaps um, has part of its, uh, like, ur mm -hmm. origin in, in the encounter with colonization struggles that was really deepened, you know, um, in, in the 70s, but, but has really flourished is the, is the recognition that there's a world of many worlds that's already here and has been here from before the emergence mm -hmm. of empire and that could be, can be, will be um, after, and that that's a greater horizon. So the indigenous communities and their struggles and the, and the form of, of imagination, but also practice mm -hmm. of, um, of, of life that is impacted by colonization but has not been completely consumed by it and, uh, and which then offers a different sort of vision for what life is against and beyond empire. And so this is, you know, and yet this is also pretty invisible in a lot of the theory. I mean, it's invisible in certain in moments in, in Zapatismo. Mm -hmm. It's visible in some of the, you know, struggles up in so-called Canada and, uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, in, and in this country and in, around the world. But it's often in theory theory, much less visible. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I wonder to what degree there's, um, there's a way in which uh, uh, like there's a there's a there's a yearning and, a, and a, like, a, 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 like a from a workers perspective like a creativity that's mm -hmm. like constantly bursting forth um, and like yearning and, and calling us towards a sort of complexity and multiplicity. We talk about the multitude, articulate mm -hmm. multitude, which sounds an awful lot like ecosystems. Sounds mm -hmm. an awful lot like the the form of life that's all around us. That's you know that is like um, that the that the empire is consuming and destroying and you know, undermining the, the, the potential for our life and that like potentially what we're what what we might mean by revolution might be a return to a sort of a ecological multiplicity within and beyond humanity and, and, and the rest of life. Mm -hmm. um, and that but doing that asks us to look far beyond what we often recognize as political. And that the modes of struggle, uh, be they, you know, <coughs> spiritual communities, be they uh, artistic sorts of expression, um, but ultimately that go towards reproduction, that go towards the everyday life, the way that we pattern our lives, our relations, our decisiveness, um, and and that, you know, what that may require in terms of like articulating multiplicity mm -hmm. is is uh, is like a, a, set of, a set of like practices that, that focus on like opening ourselves beyond what we think should happen, what we know to be ourselves, mm -hmm. and recognizing that um, being in, in relationship and even open to other modes of being and, and, and forms of life is not dangerous to us, but hope, but like in the in the best form of it, can can uh, can afford like a, a greater uh, enaction of our own autonomy. Mm -hmm. That's a, a sort of politics that I think is pointed to here and there, but like the, but I don't I don't see it a lot, mm -hmm. and I and I'm curious where you see like pointers to that in the 70s or where you see pointers to that now.
I'm not. Uh, I mean, I was thinking that um, your point about the affective uh, relations, like about that, in some ways, that you're in a way responding to the. I mean, the way. I mean, it's not. You were saying much more in a localized last ten years way about how COVID has made people not recognizing the form of affective attachments and stuff like that. You're speaking about that in a much larger context, but that seems. Um, that seems that seems um, right to me. I don't, I um, yeah I I don't know. I mean I think I think the indigenous struggles in the Americas is a really good reference point for that. Um, and maybe I'm trying to think about like Latin American ones that I know. Well, maybe I was thinking maybe maybe in more along the lines that you're suggesting, you know, in the last 20-ish years than in the 1970s. Um, but in any case, I, I mean, I think, I think most of what your point was, was more like a um, comment than a question, and I think it was a good one, you know, which was uh, that one should, that part of these political discussions, that these political discussions ought to intersect with the kind of vision of the our interactions in a, almost it even in a cosmological sense with um, yeah I, I mean I would say not not with at least in my view not with um, a return to traditions but a working with traditions if that makes sense um, but in any case that that seems like a uh, I don't know an important contribution I don't know I don't know if I have anything to add to that, really. And that seems like a lovely place to end. Yeah, um, maybe I'll ruin that moment because okay. I, I wanted to uh, just close with an anecdote from last night. I went to the, a protest at Grand Army Plaza against whatever Israel's preparing for Gaza. And there, someone made this comment, a few people made this comment actually, that's like, remember before the Iraq war started, what did you do, you know? Did you do the right thing? And just think about what you should have done then and maybe do it now. And I thought, and I, I had the impression that a lot, of, a lot of people there had the same feeling that like, well, I did this. I went to a protest and it didn't work. So now you, you kind of make this whole thing feel irrelevant. And I think in a way it's, it's, no, it's not totally irrelevant. You know, it's good that people gathered and, you know, saw each other and had some show of solidarity. But... I don't think anyone there was under the illusion that yelling at Chuck Schumer's house was going to make him change his mind. In fact, I think he was on a flight to Israel while we were there. Uh, so what part of, you know, part of the horror of the whole thing is that there's nothing that we can really do about it. It seems like there's nothing the people of Gaza can do about it. And, but there's a certain freedom in acknowledging like, well, protest is not going to solve this problem. We have to think about what we can do in our lives that can solve the problems of our lives and of our neighbors. And there's a huge prison system in the United States. Mm -hmm. Rikers is a horrendous prison. And we've seen in 2020 that masses of people can challenge state power and put the state on the defensive. It was, it was maybe just for a moment, but it seems like your work and what we try to do at Woodbine is try to figure out what people can do what they want to do and what actually does work um, so we don't have to feel powerless at a protest again and again.
On that note, we've got... <laughs> was that too dark? No. no, no, that was good, actually. <laughs> that I was actually pretty hopeful. That was me trying to be optimistic. Yes. Um, I recognized it. I saw it. Uh, on that note, feel free to hang out for a little while, um, have a drink. We've got some snacks over there, and we have some books. Uh, we don't have the service of 70s, unfortunately, but they have it at Word is Change in Bed-Stuy. Um, I assume at Blue Stockings and places like that as well. But we do have a book you wrote about Bolivia. With, with Sandro, Mitsadra, yeah. And you've got my book about Posadism and a book about the George Floyd uprising that a lot of people here, some people here have contributed to, and uh, our new journal here at Woodbine Reservoir, which is really great. So check those out and um, come talk to me if you want one. And thanks a lot for coming, everybody. No, non serve la ragione contro un colpo di cannone. Il potere deve uscire dalla canna del fucile. Ecco il sangue proletario se pagato la lezione. Perde sempre il riformismo, vince la rivoluzione. Ed il Cile è un altro Vietnam. Cile un altro Vietran combattir a los padrones donde sea y como sea es la única ley que tenemos los explotados combatir a los padrones donde sea y como sea es la única ley que tenemos los explotados combatir a los padrones donde sea y como sea es la única ley que tenemos los explotados combatir